ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek, 5 foot 11, 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous, 5 foot 11, 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication. Turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. And we're back with exciting news. Yes, we are now professional. We have a sponsor for the show, which is awesome for us, but even more awesome for you. Indeed, because who doesn't love a sweet, sweet online shopping discount code? And in this case, it's an online shopping discount code that gets you delicious coffee delivered to your doorstep. From our good friends, Prism Coffee, who are four Canberra lads who I've known for a while. Uh, who've all worked in and around the specialty coffee industry for some time now and now uh, out on their own they've got a roaster they're roasting beans uh, and just generally kicking ass with delicious coffee so john how do the people get this amazing discount you speak of go to their website which is prismcoffee.com.au pick from the couple of different blends and some single origins that they've got. You can get it ground, you can get it in whole beans if you prefer to grind your own. They've got all of the options. Uh, and then you use the code PEAKSPEAK in the discount bit of the shopping cart and uh, you'll get a sneaky 10% off and it'll rock up on your doorstep in some amount of time. I don't remember exactly what it is, but I think they express post everything, so hopefully quickly. Perfect. Amazing. And well, that's it. Without further ado, here's, here's the episode. Yeah. Enjoy. Presented by Thomas Lilly and John Sheridan, Baby Cry in the Background, not included. So, we're back for another episode of Peak Speak. I've replaced John with a much better looking Lydia. How are you doing? I'm good, Thomas. How are you this morning? Very good, thank you. So, uh, for those of you who don't know, Lydia is a strong man, a strong woman, powerlifter, um, a super celebrity reality TV show superstar, and a black belt in jujitsu. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Why not? Probably the most legit is the jujitsu. No joking. <laughs> I think I'm more of a celebrity in your head than anybody else's. <laughs> That's all right. I'm okay with that. Um, yeah. Uh, and you're the very first, uh, very first guest of the new year, so that must feel fantastic on such a high quality oh, podcast. <laughs> I feel like you're setting the tone for the year ahead. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we need to we need to give the people a, a little bit more of a taste of of who you are. So, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Uh, who are you, and how did you get into the wonderful world of lifting weights? Absolutely. So. Um, 2012, my life changed rather dramatically in regards to I took part in the reality television show, The Biggest Loser. So I had been morbidly obese up until that point, had an office job, had a very ordinary life, like worked Monday to Friday, nine to five, uh, you know, drank beers on the weekends. I had horses, which I showed very competitively across Australia. And so 
had never set foot in a gym, had never been in a gym, had never lifted a barbell, had never done anything at all weight related. So yeah, 2012 made the decision to take part in The Biggest Loser. There's, I don't need to go into the process of that, but I applied online because I knew that my life needed to change in regards to that the biggest impact on my life was that I was basically too big to ride my horses competitively anymore. And that that was the major impact. It wasn't for me, losing weight wasn't about that I wanted to, you know, be more feminine or fit into particular clothing or just, you know, change my lifestyle. It was reality was that I was very competitive with my horses and I was just too big to be competitive anymore and really too big to ride at the level that I wanted to ride to. So that's, that's why I chose, you know, when I was selected to take part in the show, why I chose to go about it. So yeah, 2012 uprooted my life totally. So for those people, a lot of people are always interested about like how reality TV works in that regard. So what happens is um, the show was filmed over six months. So for six months, I took leave without pay from my government job. I was moved to Sydney. It was filmed at Manly um, up on the North Head and the military barracks there. And so you commit to a six-month period and you basically give up your life as it is for six months. So they put you on a plane. They meet you at the other end. They take your wallet off you. They take your bags off you. They take your passport. Your birth, like you, you don't have any contact with the outside world from the moment you step off the plane in Sydney until you get back into your life some six months later. So that's pretty daunting for someone who'd been a very independent person up until that point that you literally were picked up from the airport. And at that, from that point on, for the next six months, you had a chaperone wherever you went. And you're, the practical side of things, you pay the stipend while you're there. So you don't actually make any money as such out of being on the show. They cover your expenses. So they pay mm-hmm. your mortgage or your rent or, you know, whatever you need to be able to survive with them for six months. So that's how that works. And they provide everything you need from washing powder to deodorant to shampoo and conditioner to your underpants. Everything you need is provided for. It apparently costs, when they produce a show like The Biggest Loser, per contestant, it costs about 1.5 mil to put you through that process. Mm-hmm. Because you are like obviously insured while you're there, the whole thing. You sign a contract, yay thick when you take part in the show and it, and it pretty much says that you're okay with the fact that if you die during the show or something bad happens, you're not going to sue them or, you know, and have a negative outcome. And I think for anyone who's ever been in the position that I'm in, you pretty, if, if you get to a point where you want to change your life, you're pretty desperate to change your life. You'll do whatever it takes. And this really was one of the first times in my life that I felt, it it was really funny because from the moment that I was interviewed, like I auditioned for the show, it's the first time in my life, whether you want to call it fate or it's just the chain of events, I knew it was going to change my life. Like, and I'm not somebody, anyone who knows me, I'm very much, I, I struggle with the fact that I'm a glass half empty person. I can be very negative. Like I used to always think that bad things were thrust upon me. You know, my life has changed a lot since then, but I just knew, I knew it was going to change my life. So that was me for six months. I uh, took part in the show. It was very different. I'd never watched the show. I knew the concept of the show and what it was about. The only reality TV show I'd watched up until then was Survivor. And uh, it, it was very different 
it's a very different process from what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Very different process. So I, I yeah. I've I have to confess I've never actually seen one episode of The Biggest Loser. So I I I have a I have an idea like a general vague idea of how the whole mm-hmm. thing works. Um, mm-hmm. For me, The Biggest Loser was really popular when I was like 13, 14. Like that's when it first yeah. came out and then ran for years and years. And I'd started to become like this health nut. And I just thought it went against anything uh, that would be properly healthy and sustainable and everything like that. So I kind of boycotted it a little bit. Um, but when you say so, that it was a different process than what, what people see, um, what do you mean by that? Well, what do you think the process would be? Like without like, like how do you think it would work? Well, my, my vague idea is that, you know, you come on, uh, you do stuff for a week where they thrash you and just film the whole process of beating you up and making you eat next to nothing and then weigh you in. And then, uh, you know, whoever's lost the least weight gets eliminated or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I sort of had this idea that it was going to be like, um, they, you know, you go there and you learn, like, obviously you train and it's going to be hard. Like I wasn't, didn't think it was just going to be like that you're 10 minutes on the treadmill. Hmm. Um, but I thought you would be educated. I thought they'd teach you how to train and they'd teach you how to eat. And, you know, like, I guess I probably thought it was going to be like, maybe not like a health retreat, but more educational. Mm-hmm. And As you know, it's more about like, helping you rather than yes, at your expense. 100%. Yeah, like, and just the byproduct was that they filmed the process. So I think, like, maybe think about, at that stage, think about things like MasterChef. Like, not only do the contestants go on there and they show off their skills, but they there's cooking classes and they get people in and they teach them how to fillet a fish and things like that. So I guess in my head I thought that's what it was going to be like. Mm-hmm. And I've always spoken very openly about loser, which, you know, the reality is you set yourself up to be criticised for that. What, what I find hard is when I speak quite openly about it, it's not from a point of view of like that I feel somehow scorned by the experience or I feel like this sort of like, you know, like it, it changed my life. Like it, and, you know, if people say to me now, would you do it again? The reality is I would. Like I would do it again. I would just do it differently if I did it again. Mm-hmm. But it's, it, it's probably emotionally one of the most like scarring experiences that I've had in regards to it's very like I can look at it now without sounding really over dramatic about it. Like it's emotionally like very, I don't want to say you're emotionally raped, but you probably really are. Like it's, you know, the nearest thing I guess I could compare it to is like when people go into the armed forces it's very much like you think about movies like Full Metal Jacket, like they own you. So mm. they take, you You can't, like, even if you ran away, Thomas, you have no wallet, no ID, no bank card, nothing. Like, mm-hmm. and the whole time, every day, what's thrust upon you is trust the process, trust the process, trust mm-hmm. the process, trust the process, trust the process. So you rock up exactly, exactly as you said, you are pretty much physically, you know, you're manipulated to the point of, well, I'll give you an idea because most people watching this would have some like um, health and nutrition and training background. So you rock up, I weighed 142 kilos when I arrived and I'm only five foot, then I was five foot four, I'm much shorter now, but I was five foot four at that stage. So I was very obese. I was relatively healthy. Like I know that sounds a bit bizarre, but I didn't have high blood sugar, high blood sugar level. I didn't have high cholesterol. 
my joints were relatively good. I, I'd never put myself like, it wasn't like I'd ever played any sport up until that point. So I was in relatively good condition for somebody. And do, yeah, do, they, do they monitor those health markers as well? Or are they literally just looking at your body weight? Like, is there doctors no. on site that are taking that sort of stuff? And So you go through a full medical to get onto the show and a full psychological evaluation to the degree that you would when you joined the armed forces. So it's not mm. just like, oh, yeah, bang, bang, you look pretty healthy. It's pretty rigorous. I honestly thought there's no way I'm going to... When I did the psychological evaluation, I was like, oh, well, here I'm out. I'm not going to pass this. <laughs> I thought amazingly I did. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty rigorous. Are there people monitoring your health? Very loosely, yes. If you want to see a doctor or you want to see a psychologist, it's a very long process to get to see somebody. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like you're talked out of it. By the time... I can remember at one stage I wanted to see the psychologist and it took like a day and a half to see the psychologist. So it's a little bit like it's, it's not, there's a paramedic on site 24 seven. There's an insurance assessor on site 24 seven. Um, we had access. There's a podiatrist once a week. We had remedial massage once a week. You could see the doctor if you needed to, you could see the psychologist if you really needed to. So that would give you an idea. Oh, there was a dietitian that used to come in. He was great, but the trainers didn't really appreciate him being there because it educated us as to how badly what we were doing was to our body. Hmm. So I came in at 142 kilos. I ate 1,000 calories a day. So our guidelines were to eat 1,000 calories a day, and we tried to burn on our heart rate monitors, which are highly inaccurate, but at the time, that was what we had and we didn't know any different. We tried to burn 2000 calories a day on our heart rate monitor. So other than just your yeah, basal metabolic rate, which at 142 kilos is going to be pretty huge. I'm trying to burn 2000 on top of that. So it's probably sitting at about a 3000 calorie deficit every day. Mm-hmm. And Good so times. Um, when, when you're saying you're eating a thousand calories a day, how mm-hmm. is, is that like, is that packaged for you? Is it like, here's, here's Lydia's breakfast, lunch, dinner, or do you guys have access to food and the challenges don't, don't get into the food? Do they set up things that are like tempting you to break it so they can put it on TV? Like, I mean, sorry if these are naive questions, if I just no, want no, to show that I might know, but you know. Yeah, no, no, no. So the first week, our, so Michelle Bridges was my trainer. So um, the first week our meal plan was given to us in regards to this is what you're eating for breakfast, this is what you're eating for lunch, this is what you're eating for dinner, these are the snacks you're allowed to have. And that was pretty much conveniently all taken from her books that she had written. <laughs> so here, here's my handy book, sales package. How bro um, was it? Is it like chicken and broccoli sort of stuff? Oh, uh, it was, uh, I think my highlight of like, this is not real food, was the watermelon and feta cheese salad. I was like... I've to that to this day never been able to eat mashed cauliflower again and I struggle <laughs> I struggle with we came up with this oyster sauce and Greek yogurt chicken dish and to this day I can't eat oyster sauce like it just oyster sauce and cauliflower mash give me like really bad PTSD yeah, like yeah I just yeah. can't do it wow so yeah there was a lot of things like that so, and we were allowed to, 
we're allowed to have like diet soft drinks. We're allowed to have diet yogurts and diet desserts. Like, you know, things like low cow or diet chocolate mousses and shit like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, were there cameras set up? Yes. This the one of the one of the selling points of this particular season, not that we knew when we were there, was there were hidden cameras everywhere. So if you went into the cool room and you were like in the cool room, you know, snacking on something in the cool room hidden, there was actually a camera in the cool room filming you. And then there was like a bungalow, this secret like bunker that at one stage I got access to and you could watch people. Like there was a fairly funny semi-famous incident with one of the contestants eating a cheese sandwich hidden behind the counter, one of my teammates. So there was stuff like that went on for sure. Hmm. After the first week, part of the process was using, using those books. We then came up with our own meal plans. Mm-hmm. So we would go, okay, what can we eat that totals? Cause we were using like um, a, a calorie counter so we could write our own meal plan as to what you could come up with for a thousand calories. So, you know, we would then decide what we were going to eat for a thousand calories. Did, were we given any guidance on, you know, macros or, or anything like that? Were we offered like any supplements, BCAAs, anything like that? No, no. It was just like, you've got a thousand calories, spend it how you will, make it up how you will. And there's four different trainers. So Commando's team ate paleo and, and fairly keto because he was very CrossFit at the time. We ate a Michelle's cook out of Michelle's cookbooks. Um, Shannon's crowd were very high on the chemicals in regards to they ate everything like they were drinking Pepsi Max, like it was coming out of fashion, chewing gum, eating everything diet-based, like they just smacked in the fake sugar and the fake chemicals flat stick. They must have just had the runs the whole time. Pretty much. So it was one way or the other. People were either having enemas or they were having to, like, (laughs) eat some Greek yogurt to try and slow things down. Yeah, yeah. And everybody, like, in the first week, just to give you an idea of what it was like being in the house, we were in shared rooms, so four people to a room, um, very military shower block, like communal showers, concrete shower block, communal toilets, all of that sort of stuff. It was one of the hottest summers in Sydney record. We were all morbidly obese and everyone's in ketosis. So <laughs> the... Uh, God help you. And uh, it was one of the most unpleasant times. And like, I'm pretty open. I'll speak pretty openly about stuff in regards to, I had the worst chafe I've ever had in everywhere you could possibly think that would chafe. So my bra, because my heart rate monitor chafed me from the metal, you know, how the heart rate monitors yeah. have like metal bands in them. So I got chafe under my bra strap to the point it was weeping serum and I used to have to have like hypoallergenic tape. I chafed at one stage, we did a rowing challenge. So I don't need to tell you where I chafed from the heat, <laughs> but like, I remember, I, I remember multiple times sitting, sitting on a milk crate in the shower block, peeling parts of my skin off other parts of my skin. Just like, and just thinking, the only thing that kept me going was I kept thinking to myself, this is season six and there's been like 12 to 15 contestants every season. So pretty much almost 100 people have done this before me and they survived. Mm-hmm. So I just used to tell myself, you can't go home. Like, mm-hmm. you can't go home. 
Um, so you're you're a coach now, and you know a lot of stuff about yeah. coaching and training and uh, eating and everything like that, right? Mm-hmm. You're uh, you know I I know you personally, and I know you're on top of all of that. Back then, mm-hmm. if you try and not look with the knowledge that you have now, how how intuitively or quickly or um, did you guys sort of realize, you know, training like this and eating like this probably isn't great? Well, what happens is you become very institutionalized into you, you idolize your trainer is mm-hmm. what happens. So you become, they are like your everything. They, they, your world revolves around them and they're very aware of this in regards to that's how they manipulate the process, like your relationship with them. And you'd be aware of this as a coach, how this happens. Like it still happens now. Like if you told people you could give me the most horrendous, ridiculous exercise under the sun. And you'd be like, well, he told me I'm going to do it and I'm going to be the world's best if I do it. So I'm going to do it. Mm. So you just became like, if they told you, you need to do this and run up and down, like, like, as if either of us as coaches now, as if you're going to tell somebody to pick up something really heavy when they're morbidly obese and run down a bitumen hill. Mm-hmm. But you're like, oh, yes, I will do that for you. And you're like running up and down hills and like you're doing stuff and you just do it because your trainer tells you to do it. And for me, it was like, this is the only hope I have of changing my life. Mm. Like I was on the waiting list. I was on the public health waiting list to get a lap band. Like that's where I was at in my life. So it was either if I didn't do this, what was waiting for me when I went home was getting a lap band. That was the only other way I was going to be able to lose the weight because I'd tried various things to lose weight in the past and it just hadn't worked for me for whatever reason. So I was desperate. Like you desperate, Thomas, you are desperate. And, and you become like, sorry about the cats. You become, you become, I'm just going to spray them. Hang on. Stop it. Um, you become institutionalized. You just do what they tell you. And, uh, you know, you, you, it wasn't about winning. It was just about, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I need to lose as much weight as I can. They're telling me to do this. I'll just do it. Mm-hmm. Like you just, you become brainwashed. I can't, yeah. I can't describe it any other way. And yeah. so you said, you know, you sign over six months of your life. What happens if you're one of the contestants that gets knocked out in, in round one? Are you still just hanging around there for the next six months or do they send you home? No, they, no, they send you home. They send you home and I can only tell you the experience for me when I was sent home. So when I was sent home, I they pay a gym membership for you. They don't pay for any PT or anything on top of that. They just literally go, oh, if you want a gym membership at, you know, Alpha Fitness generic gym, we'll pay for your gym membership. And then they stop paying you as such. So it's up to you if you go back to work and go about your regular job. And then they keep tabs on you up until finale. So it's pretty much then up to you. Like you, you get very little assistance once you come home. Mm-hmm. You're, you're pretty much, yep. That's the same for the people that make it to the top as well. It's just no, no aftercare whatsoever. Very little. Like I didn't make it to the top five or however many top four top three i didn't make it through to there so i can't speak on those people's behalf Mm -hmm. i I, yeah i didn't make it to top five so i made it i was the sixth however far i made it i made it to um and so i can only talk about the process for me those ones that made it through to the very top 
that were like gunning for 250,000, they probably had a little more, they probably, I, I've got no doubt they were probably a little more closely attended yeah. to than me, for example. Yeah. And with, with your trainers, uh, the yep. interactions that you have with them that's seen on TV, is there more interaction outside of that? Or is it pretty much like they just show up to be put on TV and then all other times they're just off doing their own thing, making their money? Yep. They literally show up in like, they literally show up, no makeup, in casual clothes, looking pretty, you know, no casual, standard. like pretty, yep. pretty standard. And then they, then there's like this flurry of activity and film crews start rocking up and, the heart rate goes through the roof and your trainer rocks up and they annihilate you for an hour and a half and then they leave. Is it boring? And that was... Like, is there heaps of waiting around doing nothing in those situations? Yeah, there's lots of waiting around doing nothing and there's lots of, like, being uncomfortable in the back of cars. And I actually now... I've got some fairly severe knee issues from the process of Biggest Loser. I didn't have these knee issues before Loser. And uh, I actually contribute a lot of that as funny as this sounds, to sitting in the backseat of cars, like actually sitting like with my knees bent for long periods of time, like just, yeah, it's pretty boring. And if you're someone like me, that's very like, I'm very, uh, what's the word I'm for? Not a control, uh, I guess I'm a control freak. Like I'm, I'm opinionated and I'm very honest and I'm very forthright. I had a lot of psychological issues with the whole process in regards to producers manipulating situations for the benefit of TV. I found things emotionally very hard to take. I didn't play my own game. A lot of the time I, I tried to assimilate rather than be an individual. Like the process was good for me in lots of ways. I learned a lot about myself. I suffered for a lot of the time, like, like mentally and physically. I, I felt like I was good at it. This is going to sound really weird. Like, like I, you know, I was very much very early on in the piece. I was tipped to win. Like very early on in the piece, producers were like, we've got money on you. I was good at losing weight. I enjoyed, this is when, you know, in this segues, I enjoyed training. Like I really enjoyed the process of training. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed lifting heavy things. I enjoyed that process based getting results. Like, like I, I enjoyed for me, the best way, you know, if someone asks me now, why do I train? Why do you train like you do? Why do you, like, why can you be so intense at what you do and why are you so driven? For someone like me who has anxiety and has a few issues, when I'm training very hard, and I mean maximal capacity, there's no background noise. There's just like this like it's like silencing everything that goes on in my head all my self-doubt all my questioning of myself all my worries of belonging in life of fitting in of like where i belong in society of of all the issues that you know a lot of people have they're all in that moment of maximum capacity whether it's you know like i guess the best way i could describe it is something like the assault bike if you're on the assault bike and you're actually going like max capacity for 30 seconds, all your background noise is gone. Mm. And that's what I discovered in that process for me. All my background, I had, I had some really severe panic attacks during Loser. And I thought it was like a physical reaction. Like it took me ages to realize that it was a panic attack because my sister has really severe asthma. And I thought it was like some sort of like late onset asthma attack. Mm. And then I realized it took me ages to realize 
it was actually anxiety. Like it was actually like an anxiety attack. And so that's what I discovered through the process for me. So I was very driven, very mm. driven. About halfway through, I literally didn't care about the money. I didn't care about the fact we were there to win a quarter of a million dollars. What I cared about was every week is another kilo gone. Like every week is more weight gone and I don't know how long I'm going to be here for. Mm. And, and when in your life do you get, like if I said to you, Thomas, I'm going to give you six months. I'm going to provide you whatever food you want. I'm going to pay all of your bills. All you get to do on that six months is train, walk, listen to music, do whatever you want for six months, become the best power lifter you think you can be without any outside influences in your life. Like, does that not sound like a good time? Yeah, for sure. It does. And that's, there was this moment of like, I, I discovered that. It's pretty miserable because at that stage, you don't know anything about rest and nutrition. And so you're pretty, you're suffering. Mm. Like there's a lot of suffering going on and you're not being your best person. You're not living your best life. There's no doubt about that. And you're being psychologically manipulated for TV. Mm -hmm. I was told at times, I can remember being told, no wonder you're single, like, like all the issues you've got in your life, no one will ever want you. You know, producers would tell me that to get a reaction out of me for TV. Really? Fucking 100%. Hell. So 100%. You, yeah, like you, you started that, that next block of, of conversation by saying there were times where producers would manipulate situations to get what they wanted. That's obviously an example. Um, yeah. What, what other sort of examples are there where they, they're really doing stuff like that? Um, they, would get us, they would get us all in a room together and they would ask us like really deep emotional questions. At one stage, I'll tell you about this experience and this was like humiliating. At one stage, because the whole premise of our series is that we were all single. And okay. I, remember, I remember afterwards watching the promo for our season and like the voiceovers went something like, not only, not only are these people like severely overweight, but they're single. Like, like they're so desperate. Like not only are they like so horrendously physically affected, nobody wants them in life. Mm. And I just remember watching it thinking, like I remember, I remember Michelle Bridges at my house saying to me, like her basically getting me to unravel emotionally and say, one of the issues that I had in my life was that nobody was ever going to want me. I was so physically unattractive because I was so overweight. No one would ever want me. No one would ever want to marry me. No one would ever want to have babies with me. Like no one would ever want me. And, and like, that's, uh, it's just fucked. Yeah, for sure. Like to get people, you know, people talking about, I remember when we went to audition people talking about their stories and, you know, people talking about how they felt when their husband left them because they were so unattractive. I can remember people talking about, you know, I even feel uncomfortable talking about this now. Like I can remember people talking about they had put on weight because they had lost their child. Like, and you know, we're sitting in a room and you're talking about this because Thomas, it's good TV yeah. and people want to watch people emotionally unravel on TV and you put yourself through this process because you're so desperate to be somebody that you think you're not. I remember having a moment in the shower one day and thinking to myself, 
I'd lost about 30 kilos. I remember this distinctly. I'd lost about 30 kilos and I was like about 110 kilos and I'm standing in the shower and I remember thinking to myself, when am I going to change? When am I going to change? Like I've lost 30 kilos. So when am I going to become the different person? Like when am I going to be like reborn into this new Lydia? Like when am I going to be this like, you know, all, all I ever wanted, and I know that you know me enough now to know you're going you're gonna to laugh at this and find how funny this is. I always had wanted to be, I didn't want to ever be noticed. Like I always felt like, you know, I'd go on conferences for work and I'd always be the, the large, like I'd be the fattest person in the room. And I always felt that I compensated for that by having this personality. Like I had to get in first before somebody else did. So I always had this personality. I was always outspoken. I was always loud. You know, I was always telling jokes, spinning yarns. That was me. And secretly, like when I say to people, I actually have horrendous social anxiety and I'm really shy. People laugh out loud at that. And it's like, all I ever wanted to be was somebody in the corner that nobody noticed. Mm. All I ever wanted to be, I wanted to be normal. I wanted to be ordinary. I Mm -hmm. craved, craved to be ordinary. And I remember saying this to Commando once, like all I ever wanted to be was the girl that nobody noticed, like that that didn't speak first, that wasn't loud, that, that nobody noticed, that didn't stand out in any way. That, that nobody would ever notice. And that was all I ever wanted to be. And I remember saying that to him at one stage and he said, why the fuck would anybody want to be ordinary? Everybody in their life should strive to be extraordinary. And I remember thinking, when am I going to change? Like, when is this going to change? Because I honestly thought that my physical appearance changing and losing weight would make me a different person. Mm. I would be a different person. And I, I realised... The only control I had over that was for me to moderate who I was and who did I want to be. And then I realised I had spent my whole life thinking that there was something wrong with me. I had spent my whole life having other people influence me like you're wrong, your emotions are wrong, the way you go about things is wrong, you need to change who the person you are to fit into society. Like you don't fit into society, you need to moderate that, you need to change that. And this is not for this to become like uh, an emotional message or a powerful message. Like people who do that to other people, it's the cruelest thing you can ever do to somebody. Like to make people feel like they don't belong or they don't fit or they're not right in the person that they are. Like we all need to understand the moderation of behaviour, but there's times where you can act appropriately for the situation. Hmm. nobody should ever feel like they're fundamentally wrong. And I can remember thinking like I was broken beyond repair. Like I would never be valuable to anybody. And that process made me feel like that. That process of biggest loser made me feel like that. And so when people go, oh, you should be so grateful to to the show. I am. My life changed. You got no idea what I had to go through to get there. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, you you being grateful to the show is less about what the show did for you and more about what you found in yourself that you could get out of that uh, by the sounds of things. It it would be really interesting. Like, obviously, I've only known you for a bit of around a year, let's just say a year. Um, Mm. It would be really interesting to uh, 
to talk to someone or to, to know someone that's known you for the entire time, because like, you know, you saying, like you said, you, you said, I'd laugh about the social anxiety stuff and, um, you know, wanting to, wanting to be hidden away and all of this sort of stuff. Like to me, you come across as super, super, super strong in every aspect. Like it would be interesting, uh, to have known you before and to see that change kind of happen. Um, but let's let's like get beyond the the biggest loser stuff now, and uh, I guess post biggest loser then like you're a coach now. What happened in that time between? You said it was 2012, right? Yep. The, the show. So how soon after that did you decide to go from your government job to okay, now I'm going to be a, a trainer and a coach? Like, what was the transition period for that? Through the process, what I really loved was I loved training. So that was what came out of the process for me. I loved training. When I was really lucky, when I when I um, when I came home from Biggest Loser, as in when I was eliminated, that's the word I'm looking for. I I came across a really great trainer. So I had a really good coach straight after Biggest Loser, and they helped me greatly finish off the Biggest Loser journey. And through that process, I won the eliminated contestants. Um, section of Biggest Loser and the reason that's important is that allowed me to win $25,000. I had always been someone who who I had never been very financially secure in life. I, you know, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't, wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Like mum and dad always struggled. We were, we were quite poor growing up. So $25,000 was a lot of money to me. And what that $25,000 enabled me to do was to pay to do my PT, to do a Cert 3 and a Cert 4 and to take the time off work to dedicate towards that. Eventually, I went back to my government job and I took a pretty much, it's called a workplace renewal incentive program scheme, but pretty much it's a redundancy. So even though I wasn't eligible, CEO where I worked at the time could tell that I didn't didn't want to be in my job anymore and I wanted to change my life. So I did my Cert 3, I did my Cert 4 and I took a redundancy from work and so I had I had money behind me to fund me deciding to go into the fitness industry and set myself up as a personal trainer in case it didn't work. Because what I was really aware of is I have never, ever, never traded off my fame, fame, as a biggest loser contestant to try and get clients. So I've never ever promoted myself. And usually what happens to be honest is people take me on as a trainer and then they find that out secondary. So, so usually the process now is people come to me as a coach and then they go, Oh, I didn't even realize that you're on the biggest loser. And even um, recently when something got reposted on social media about me being on the biggest loser, um, and that was through a post from um, Eugene Tao the amount of people that messaged me that day who I now know through the strength community were, and, and powerlifting and strongman were like, Oh my God, I never even knew that that was your journey. And so I, I changed my life in 2012, went from really cushy government job to hitting, be, becoming a PT and becoming a strength coach and deciding that I would try and make a living out of doing it. One of the things that I'm most proudest of in my life, is the fact that I'm not sure whether you're aware of this. You might be because you're relatively intelligent and quite analytically based. The average life of a PT, once they qualify, is nine months. So, so the average career span of most PTs when they decide to become a personal trainer is nine months. And so all I had in my head was I had to last longer than nine months to consider myself a success. And I have been a survived financially now as a coach for eight years. Hmm. 
So I've never, ever, if you scroll through my social media or you scroll through anything, I've never, ever, really ever had to promote myself. I've really, you know, I haven't had to spend, and look, I could be more successful if I did. I don't doubt that. Like if I paid, you know, went out of my way to pay for promotional videos or paid for marketing, I have no doubt my business could be, provide me more of a financial return than it does. I'm not somebody who wants to have more clients than, than I, I'm not, I don't want to be a sausage factory and just churn out people because I do consider myself, I'm not a trainer. I am a coach. And I think there's a big distinction in that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the work that I do is not as specific as what you do in regards to while I'm a strength coach, my life has set me up that I want people as cliched as this sound. I want people to find the strength within themselves that it took me a long time to find. Hmm. I've had some terrible things happen to me in my life and I watch people live very ordinary lives and I want them to live extraordinary lives. I want people to be the best that they can be of themselves and I want them to do whatever it takes to get there. And that's, that's what I spend my life doing now. Mm-hmm. And there are times where I certainly question myself and I go, you've had a government job, you know what it's like. You think to yourself, oh, gosh, how great would it be to work Monday to Friday, nine to five, paid leave, paid sick leave, you know, to- toil, like all those things. There are moments I'm sure you do it occasionally where you find yourself scanning job ads thinking, gosh, it'd be good to go back to just having this life where you have all of these things set out for you. And then I'll have a moment with one of my clients or I'll go to a comp or I'll watch somebody achieve something they never thought that they would be capable of achieving. And I realize that I'm doing what I need to be doing right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's something completely indescribable about someone hitting something and being completely overwhelmed with it and completely, you know, experiencing that rush of happiness and emotion and you knowing that it was them finding what they needed to find and you just help them achieve that. Like that's, you can't describe how good that feels. And that's, that's going to be the thing that consistently keeps me going in this job. It's probably the thing that consistently keeps you going in this job. Um, Yeah. It's very, very, very special. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's really important for me. I want, you know, in this day and age, I want like, I don't think, you know, this is where I'm going to try not to get emotional now. I never have thought I am nothing special. Like I have never thought that I am anything special. I struggle through so much of my life every day. Like, and this is not about, Oh, well, is Lydia poor Lydia? I don't think I'm anything great. I don't think like even, even, you know, when I lift and I realize that I'm, you know, I can appreciate now I'm a good power lifter. Like I, I, I'm going to be, you know, I want to be the best that I can possibly be. And I work very hard to do that. There's nothing special about me. There's nothing, you know, when people say to me, you know, you have people comment and, and like they would with you, you have people comment on your videos and this is not about vanity, but they'll say you're amazing and you're so strong and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I, I, I don't think that I do anything the way that I train, I'm very driven and I'm very focused and I, train as hard as I can every week 
and I, I want to achieve what I want to achieve every week. There's nothing special about me that anybody isn't capable of doing that. And that's what I want people to realise because I don't think there's anything special about me, you know, that I, I want people to realise whether you, your goals are the weight on the barbell, what your physique looks like, where you are in your life, how you feel about yourself as a human being, you know, I, I just want people to be know they're doing the very best that they can do and they're trying their very hardest. And, you know, that's it's, it's a hugely important thing for people to realise. Mm. The, the inner dialogue thing is is funny because like you know you saying I'm not special to me that's how I feel about myself as well and I feel like <laughs> you are special and I feel like you do have something special um, and it's so interesting because you know reflecting on how I feel because I'm the same as you when people say stuff on videos or say comments to me about anything about coaching or business or whatever uh, I don't like it because my inner no. dialogue is extremely negative like extremely negative about myself but not in a way that holds me back, in a way that drives me forward. And I think there's some positivity in that. Like I would never uh, teach anyone to do that. I teach positive self-talk and all that sort of stuff. But when you are you, you like we just kind of have this subconscious belief that this is normal, like this way that we feel about ourselves and this way that we approach life is is normal. So how can we how can we think that what we're doing is special because this is just what we do? It's really hard to have that battle of like, actually this maybe is a little bit different and, and finding that is difficult, but I mean, like you, you have that outlet via what you do for other people. And I think that in itself, regardless of whether you think it's special, it is, it's very, very, very special. Um, I, it, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of this. And, and this is, I think this is important for people to hear whether they're male or female strength athletes coming. I'll give you a great example of this. People, people meet me look partially. It's because of, uh, I'm not blind and I know a little bit of it is because of my physicality, the, the physical presence, the way that I look. A lot of people assume that I'm very confident and a lot of people assume that I have a, have a reasonable sized ego or I'm very self-confident and very assured of myself. I remember coming like when I came to visit you in Queensland, the first time that I came in November, I was terrified. I was like, I'm going to go to that gym. There's going to be like these established clicks i'm not gonna like i'm gonna feel really awkward and i'm just gonna be like the little chubby chick in the corner and no one's gonna talk to me and it's gonna be really awkward with thomas and i'm gonna like overcompensate in a thousand different ways and i like i processed about it for days for days i was like i'm not good enough i'm gonna get there and he's gonna be like gonna sack me as a client like I overprocessed about that for days, days, like a hundred, like so overprocessed about it. And people are like, do you not realize when you walk into a gym or when you walk into a room, that isn't what anybody thinks. Nobody looks at you like that. Mm. Like nobody ever thinks that about you. And I was like, it's taken me so long to be like, not be that little person like to I just can't I wish sometimes like you're saying I wish sometimes people could understand what's going on on the inside because it's so not represented on the outside mm. yeah and it's really important that people know that because it's it hasn't cost me there's been times where I've assumed it of other people like I've I've walked into a gym and gone 
oh gosh, that person, like, look at the ego on them. And, you know, and then I've got, then I've realized they're actually just really shy and it's their defense mechanism. Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I've become like, have become great friends with this person. And a lot of the time, like people assume that about me, particularly if they only see me in a, in a competition environment, because competitor Lydia is a very different human being like than, than everyday Lydia. Like mm. that's a, I'm a very different person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, have you have you had any uh, difficulty establishing yourself as a coach, or have you felt any difficulty establishing as yourself as a coach, especially moving into strength sports as you know part of your job, um, in terms of being a female? Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Like in regards to very often, you're not taking. I I think that it's for whatever reason, it's much easier to establish yourself in the sport. Let's just use powerlifting as an example. It's much easier to establish yourself in the sport of powerlifting as a coach if you're a man than as a woman. I see, um, I see a lot of what I would consider not particularly great coaches um, establish themselves through not particularly great avenues. Like social media is a huge one in regards to if you're really clever about your social media and your marketing, you can establish yourself pretty quickly or, you know, establish yourself as a strength coach pretty quickly through some pretty clever marketing with no real substance behind it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's really super important to me, and I tell this to everybody and I learnt it off um, someone who I would assume is a good mentor of yours, which is um, Chad Wesley Smith. And I remember him once talking about coaching in regards to when somebody is looking for a coach. And I would say this to anybody out there. When you're looking for a coach, there's three, three things that you should um, consider in, in that process. One is, is that person successful in their own right? So are are they successful in the sport that you're trying to pursue in their own right? Have they ever produced somebody who's successful in that sport, you know, and successful being your criteria and your definition of successful, because sometimes I'll give you an example. If you're looking for a bodybuilding coach, success wouldn't just be that that person won a title. Did, Did they win a title and go on to have a really healthy lifestyle or did they win a title and then crash and burn emotionally and physically and then hate themselves for the next five years. So Mm. be careful how you define success. Mm -hmm. Do they regularly educate themselves and are they very knowledgeable in what they coach? So, you know, as long as somebody fits two of of those three criteria, chances are they're going to be a relatively good coach. If they only fit one of those criteria, you might come across some problems. And if they don't actually fit any of those criteria, you're probably going to have some issues along the way. So if you are looking at a PT who's like pretty, pretty fresh, pretty freshly qualified or really has a lot of marketing hype, that's never really been successful themselves, never really produced anyone successful. And if you ask them what they do on a regular basis to educate themselves or what their qualifications are, and they can't really answer that question, your longevity with them as an athlete is probably not going to be great. Mm. And, you know, you don't have to be, this is where uh, the great example of that is Usain Bolt's coach was never successful at track and field himself, mm-hmm. but, you know, he produced very good athletes and he was obviously very good and very well educated at what he did. 
Mm. So you gotta you gotta somewhere along the lines meet those. So for me personally, I really I don't mind taking on athletes that don't want to be competitive athletes. So I don't I I take on a lot of my clients don't want to be powerlifters or don't want to you know I don't do so much I don't do as much strongman as I want anymore. Mm-hmm. I've always been a better powerlifter than than a strongman athlete, and so I don't coach. I really don't coach any any strongman athletes. So I take people on that don't want to be competitive powerlifters and I don't, I, what I try not to take on anymore is, and I'm, you know, when, when you start out as a PT, you're literally, you know, and you would have become more, you hone your skills a little more in regards to, you probably had, you probably had clients to start with who their goal was they just wanted to lose 10 kilos for a week. For sure. yeah. Or they just wanted to be, the, the good one is, I just want to look like I train. You know, like like people, you know, and, and they, oh, they have aesthetic goals or whatever. So I still will take some of those clients on, mm. but I really only want to take athletes on now who who want to be coached, you know, as far as strength coaching goes. Mm-hmm. And so that's more my niche market. So the reason why I'm successful in those regards is I prove myself time and time again. And I have no issue with, I train with men as much as I train with women. I've trained a lot in male, you know, I, I've been very successful as a, as a strongman athlete and I've been very successful as a powerlifter. And so I, my social, I've never marketed myself. I think this is going to sound, I sort of hesitate saying this. I'm not, I'm not a typical size eight blonde. I don't have a problem with this. I'm not, I'm not really pretty. And I'm not a really typical female personal trainer. So I think that's why I tend to attract both male and equally male and female clients and have a degree of success in a strength sport because I don't know why, but I feel like that benefits me. Mm -hmm. And I've probably never really massively thought about that up until now. Yeah, no, and I mean, like, you don't have to hesitate to say that because it, it's just yeah. it's just the reality. Like, it's it's the unfortunate reality of female strength coaches because so often uh, they're not going to be chosen by big male lifters because lots of people come into this sport and it's such a, a you know backyard sport with the attitude of like, well, she doesn't squat three hundred kilos, so how is she going to teach me to squat three hundred kilos? Mm. It, like I even get it. I even get it. I, I've ha- had it recently. And it's, it's just funny because now that I coach heaps of coaches, coaches tell me this stuff as well. Mm. So I'll, I'll get people that are like, you know, secondhand information from the coach. It's like, well, they came to me and I'm like, oh yeah, that's cool. Like it doesn't bother me. It's like, it's, it's funny though, because you coach me and I said, you know, why are you coming to me? And they're like, well, your total's bigger than Thomas's. It's like, <laughs> that's people, really? yeah, people legit have that mindset, which is cool. I mean, like, go for it but it's a big hindrance for i feel for females in the sport like now that i do the coach development thing i get so many females come through the program that are so fucking 10 20 miles ahead than most coaches out there even before Mm. doing the system let alone after doing the system that until we remove this stigma from the sport like your three criteria that you're talking about for picking coaches fantastic until we move the stigma of like the number one criteria has to be you're strong like what because a yeah. strength strength is relative, uh, and b if your if your only litmus test for a good coach is that they're stronger than you, you're you're fucking barking up the wrong tree. Um, 
And that's so much. Do you, do you know what amazes me? What amazes me with strength sports that that hasn't caught on is it has in AFL. Does that make sense? You look at how many players or like, like AF, AFL, NRL, how many players go through the system are great players. Like, like I'm talking like, you know, you're not to show my age here, but like, yeah, your Alfie Langers and you're like Matthew Lloyds and, and, you know, your people, those, those type players, you know, Nathan Buckley, it's very rare for great players to become great coaches. And it's the same as athletes suddenly like, like when will people stop choosing coaches based purely on it's, it's like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give up powerlifting now and become a coach and like so many athletes will not be good coaches. Mm. Like they just, just won't. And so I think you really have to people, you know, if that's anything that comes out of this podcast today for people is you really need to think about what you want out of your coach. And you really need to think about like what your, why they appeal to you or like where you're going. I'm maybe I'm really lucky. Like sometimes I think, Am I just really lucky in regards to how I look at my progression through coaches is every coach I have had has been fantastic. I have never like the, I consider my coaching journey with my coaches a book and each one of them has been a chapter in that book. They're not separate books that I then close the cover on and put away. Mm-hmm. They are like, and even through the time with you, like I've said to you that I, you know, there's been times where I've said to you, oh yeah, and I talked to my old coach about that or whatever. Sure. And it's like, we're all grown up enough to realise that, but it's like, there's there's nothing, like people have got to realise it's no different from lifting shoes or the belt. Not everyone loves a lever belt. Some people want a pronged belt. Not everyone likes 13 mil. Some people like 10 mil. Coaches are coaches and they're going to fit and sometimes they're not going to fit. And sometimes what you want isn't what you need. Mm-hmm. And that's where you need to be really careful about. You You should take on what you need. And I know people now, I think people now more respect me in the sport of, you know, and I, I live in a, I, I live in a, a state that, like, I, you know, I don't have the population that you have in Queensland, for example. Like, I have a much smaller bucket to pick athletes from, and more and more people come to me now because they've watched my longevity in the career in 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 powerlifting. They've watched me get better. They've watched me. Again, I don't say this out of ego. Like, like I feel one of the biggest, one of my biggest. Bone, one of my biggest positives is I'm just going to keep defying odds. Like I'm old for a strength athlete. Like I came into this sport late, but I defy the odds constantly. I get stronger. I get better. I get more muscle mass. I become a better athlete every year. And I am like not young. And like I watch in, I am proud of the fact that as a female powerlifter, I've watched people come and they're going to be the next best thing in powerlifting. And I've watched them walk out the door and I've stayed through that journey and watched it. And I'll watch many more next big things come and go. And I'll still be there chipping away, putting five and 10 kilos on my total in a more sustainable and healthier way. Like <laughs> glory is so short lived in this sport. You, 
one thing that you have taught me, Thomas, more, you know, that is so valuable is if you are not in this for the long game, you will not succeed as an athlete. Mm. To keep coming back to that whole stigmatization as well, when it comes to male and female coaches, do you think because that stigma exists that that contributes to the over-sexualization of females in strength sports? Oh, 100%. You know, it, it, it used to be, um, it's a bit like women in position. Let's just talk outside of strength sports for a moment. It's a bit like women in positions of power. Like you, you know, you look at through the ages, women who've had positions of power, like they've been prime ministers or, you know, governor generals, or they've had high positions of power or they've run government bodies or they've been CEOs. You know, if they are super attractive, they got where they got because of their looks. If they're not super attractive, you know, they must have ruled with an iron fist or people like, I can't believe still in this day and age that we are, I feel this is such a, a off topic. I feel very strongly about the sexualization of strength sports. I find it very hard to have this conversation because I feel like people assume it's based from some sort of jealousy in regards to that. I must be jealous of the way that somebody looks and how they portray themselves. I, I believe that the majority of, and I might get castigated for this. I don't know. I believe people understand the intent behind the photos that they post when people I've had this conversation with many a female strength athlete, both for and against like IE the athletes that post photos of themselves in G strings with their bum and their boobs hanging out, but it's not about the sexuality of that photo. Oh, I didn't post that photo because I wanted somebody to go and look at it in a sexual manner. You did. You did. Like, I don't believe that you weren't thinking about that when you posted that photo. Maybe there's people out there that are. Like, maybe they truly are. And, you know, I think that I'd love to have a conversation. I know that Steffi Cohen's been talking about this a little bit lately. And I had an epiphanous moment the other day. Like, I opened up my social media and I'm scrolling my social media. And the one thing I had always liked about Steffi Cohen was that I didn't feel that her material was overly sexualized and I felt like people really took her seriously as a strength coach. I felt like she was a very good athlete and she was taken very seriously as a strength coach and it had nothing to do with her physicality and she had never posted herself. Like I never felt that her material had this over-sexualized content to it. And then I opened up my social media and it was Steffi Cohen in a forest in a white G-string with a hair blowing in the breeze and I felt heartbroken. I felt like devastated and I was like, why do I feel like this? Like, why do I feel so upset about this? Like I, I genuinely was like, like I felt grief. Like I was felt so attacked. And then I realized, like I had this moment where I was like, but that's on me. That's on me. How I feel is my choice in how I feel in that moment. And if she is using this as a marketing tool to get people more traffic through her page, somehow more stream of revenue, is that not smart? Like I really had this internal debate of, is it smart of her to sexualize herself now or will it cost her followers? Mm. Like, like I'll, I'll throw that back on you. What do you think? 
I yeah, I I don't know. It's it's such a it's such a tricky one. Like the the whole the whole conversation around what you're talking about is a tricky one because it, it applies to you know political opinions or opinions on uh, big serious issues. Is is always going to be this weird space of like this is my social media. I can do what I want with it. And if you're following me and you see it and you get upset, that's on you. That's not on me. And I mean, to some extent that's true, but because our virtual worlds are now becoming so intertwined with our real worlds, when you apply that thought process to a real world situation, it becomes really odd. Like you imagine, um, you know, uh, I die and you guys are all at my funeral and you decide to get up on the mic and you're like, you know what? I didn't actually like Thomas. I thought he was a piece <laughs> of shit. And everyone gets all upset about it. And you're like, well, this is my opinion and I'm allowed to use the mic. Like if you yeah. guys hear this and you're upset, that's on you. That's not on me. It's like, well, there's some social etiquette that probably says you shouldn't do that. And so it's weird because we cross the line when it comes to social media and we flip it and we say, no, it's all on you. Uh, I think uh, there I, is some responsibility that- in the other direction. Let me challenge you on this because I am always honest with you and I actually <laughs> am not scared of challenging you. And this can be cut out of the podcast if need be. Here you go. Cause I've had, I've actually had more than one conversation about this and you, you know that I'm very honest about stuff. So your post recently about, you know, your uh, piss take my, post. My satire. Yeah. Your satire. Yes. Do you, how do you feel if you, know that that post gen not oh, not genuinely upset but if you think some people read that post and went oh thomas that's a little bit harsh i feel a bit personally attacked by that post how does that make you feel and i mean people like for instance your clients if they were like oh i feel like thomas was having a go at me through that post are you like i know that i've had a similar conversation with you before off air and you've been like I don't care. That's on them. Do you care? I I have no intention to purposely upset anyone. My my satire on on uh, on powerlifting is often based at myself. Like if you want to do your research and go through my posts, I've made like multiple posts like that. Yeah, like, yeah. That this wasn't my day post, and thank you to yeah, my yeah. whole family and my whole crew and everything like that. Yeah. Um. So. I guess, yeah. I mean, like that's a that's a really good challenge because I know for me, it's not coming a, a, from a place of malice. I have no intent to hurt anyone. I want to make people yeah. smile, not not make people feel bad. Uh, and mm. so, if you're listening to this and I made you feel bad, I'm really sorry. That wasn't my intention. But that's, I mean, that that is the perfect example of this, right? It's, it's on it's, them, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is on me too because I chose to post it. Like, mm. and I, I, you know, uh, yeah, that, no. I mean, like that's a perfect example. I, th- I yeah, think it's and, great. And, it's... and the, exa- the example that I'll give you of that is, and, and like I'll be, I'll be 100% honest here and I won't, I won't put this on someone else. It didn't, it didn't, in saying that I have actually had conversations with someone else, this is not just about me. It actually made, it actually made me contemplate what I post on social media. So it influenced me in regards to I went, if I were to post a post, along those lines, Thomas would judge me for it. No, I'd like it. That's how it made me like, yeah. so no, no, but do you do it? But this is where, and this is where I can remember having a conversation with you and you saying to me, um, like I said to you, like I was trying to explain to you how you influence how people, how, what people might think or how they might feel. And you were like, oh yeah, but that's on them. 
Like that's on them. And I remember walking away thinking, oh, that was a bit, I, I don't know whether it is just on them. Like, <laughs> because you are, one, one could argue that you are in a position of being a social influencer, whatever that shit means. <laughs> Do you feel more responsibility in what you post or is it just purely, this is what I feel like posting now? Yeah, well, now I'm going to have to go away and think about it, I know. You watch you watch now, my next post will be something super serious and super empowering and super lift yourself up kind of deal. <laughs> no, well, do you see you do you see yourself as an influencer? Not at all. Not at all. No. Um, I'm not has, saying you should, cuz I don't want you through this conversation, I don't want you to feel now that you're going to question what you do and say. And my epiphanous moment about Steffi Cohen was I realised that she can do whatever she wants. You mm -hmm. can do whatever you want. How it impacts me is on me. And that was the moment that I had through that because I remember having a conversation with someone about your post and them saying to me, I think that's going to hurt people's feelings. People, people will actually get like, I think he's like almost crossed the line there. People might get a little bit butthurt by that. And I remember thinking, oh, it certainly, it certainly influenced the way, like it made me go, made me question the way that I might write a post, post comp. But then I, I really feel like through conversations with you and through my feelings on the sexualization type posts, I really realised it's up to me. And that doesn't mean I need to make this whole big movement about, you know, I suddenly need to be like, like start some movement about plus size athletes or dress how you want or wear the shorts. Like do whatever the fuck makes you happy. Like, because it's on you because no one else is going to make you happy. Like the reality is at some point in time in our lives, we are all going to be figuratively and literally alone, naked, on a rock, no money, no friends. And you know what? No one's going to be there. Like you've got to be worried about your own shit and you've got you to own it. And it doesn't matter. Like your posts aren't going to influence what I post. And Steffi Cohen putting herself up naked isn't going to change the way that I feel about strength athletes. I'm going to feel the way I feel I'm going to buy a powerlifting suit because I don't want to see cleavage on the platform. So I'm going to wear a suit that you can't see my cleavage because I don't like it. That doesn't mean somebody else can't have their boobs hanging out when they powerlift. That's on them. Like, you know, and I, I have realized that more and more now because, you know, even at 43, I'm changing every day. Like every day I'm a better version of myself and, you know, I'm, I'm, I struggle with where I am and all I want to do is be, as happy as I can be because I realize now more and more and more I'm, I'm the only person who can influence it. Mm. Yeah. Good. That's uh, very uh, thought provoking stuff towards the end there. I like it. Um, I think we'll, I think we'll end it on that, uh, on that note, but we, we have to go through your questions before we go through the questions. Where oh, can, okay. where can, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on Instagram, LidsPT, or you can find me on Facebook. So just find me. 
my name will be spelt correctly on the advertisement of this podcast. So Correct. I've never, and I've never actually heard you have to have a go at having, I always said, I can't wait till I hear Thomas have to pronounce my surname at some point in time. Um, oh, I'd just say Handkey. Oh, well done. Yeah. I think I've, I think I've known other Handkeys in my life. Hmm. Because I intuitively knew how to say it from the start. Anyway. Um, you did. Anyway. All right. Question one. Uh, yes. One of the questions. If you could have dinner with anyone on earth and pick their brains, they have to be alive right now, who would it be? Um, yeah, I, I'll go with Steffi Cullen because I really, I really would like to have a conversation with her about that, about yeah. the sexualization of women and, and strength sports. Yeah. And just... Just like I find it curious from the outside looking in, I can tell she's been on a bit of a journey recently in regards sure. to powerlifting and how she's feeling about things. And I would really like to have that conversation with her. Cool, cool, cool. Um, Favourite lifting memory, uh, both as a coach and as a lifter? Um Favourite lifting memory as um, a coach would be watching, uh, does it have to be a specific memory or a feeling that many memories provide? No, no, that's fine. Feeling is I, fine. What, okay, what I absolutely love as a coach is people mm. who've been through multiple coaches and been told that, They'll never squat to depth or they'll never be able to produce a good total on the platform. Taking those athletes and watching them produce what they had always dreamed and hoped about producing, you know, watching athletes who have, uh, they're not genetically predispositioned to be good power lifters, be good power lifters. That's, 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 I feel where I love being a coach. I love watching people achieve what they had been told and didn't think was possible. And, and my own, um, as a lifter, look, probably two. The, the first one being winning, winning my first world championship at Static Monsters because I think any, for anybody winning a world championship is a pretty sweet, sweet thing. And squatting 200 under you at the last comp was something I had dreamed of doing. And even though it wasn't a particularly like, it didn't feel like a glorious moment, it made me feel like I had arrived as a power lifter. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Um, what's one piece of advice that you'd give uh, a new lifter starting out and it can't be get a coach? <laughs> um, Surround yourself with the right people. And sometimes that's no one. Cool. I like it. Um, and the last one is what's one thing that you used to believe super, super, super firmly in the context of training, uh, you would have fallen on your sword for it, but now since you've completely changed your mind on. Your knees can't go over your toes when you're squatting. <laughs> your knees can't go over your toes. <laughs> my knees can't go over my toes. I used to absolutely, one of my absolute... 100% go-tos was even on leg press or anything, you can't let your knees track further forward than your toes. And I'm, I'm not even 
I am so, my ego has been so stripped bare in the last few years. Like, I'm not even embarrassed to admit that that's, I used to like train people and be like, whatever movement they were doing, their knees were not allowed to go over their toes. And probably the a more recent one was that your shins had to be straight when you were deadlifting. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Well, Lydia, thank you so much. That was uh, fantastic. Um, so Thanks, yeah, find, Thomas. Find Lydia on social media and that's the end. Done.